I do hope that you've had a great Christmas so far. I'm kind of curious, how many of you still have more Christmas to go, as in you have more gifts to exchange with some other people yet? All right, that's like lots of you. That would be our case as well. Now, for those of you who are kids in the room, glad that you are with us in a special way today. For those of you who are kids, how many of you have gotten something that you really wanted for Christmas so far? All right, that's, I think, like all of you. How many of you gotten a toy or a game? All right, lots of, how many of you have gotten socks? All right, like pretty much all of you. All right, way to go, parents. I love it. I I love that. Our kids, I think, have gotten socks most years also, so that's pretty awesome. Well, for you working adults in the room, I'm curious, how many of you have taken or are taking at least one or two extra days over the holiday season off of work? right? That's, that's like most of you. That's fantastic. What I hope for you, though, is that you're actually able to enjoy that, in that you're not getting too many texts and emails from work who are trying to get you to do things even though you're off work, because we, we know that that can happen, right? Well, that can at least happen unless you live in Portugal, because in Portugal, the country's parliament just passed a law that it's illegal for a boss to text their employees after hours. Who wants to move to Portugal, right? All right, everybody wants to go to Portugal. They're trying to pave the way for better working conditions. For the, so no text after hours, no text while you're off work, no text while you're on vacation. And they went a step further beyond that, and this sort of grew out of the COVID situation in that... They've also decided that what they would want to make available for parents especially because it's difficult to be at home and you've got the the kids at home and time off of school and all of those things. And so they enacted another law that says that if you have a child at home, you don't have to go into the office. In fact, you don't even have to notify the employer that you're staying home to work that day until your child turns eight years old. That's pretty generous, I would say, of them. I I got to thinking about that here at Pathway and what that would be like. And I got to thinking about Pastor Jason (laughs) and the age range of his kids, his eight children. I did the math. He wouldn't actually have to come into the office for 24 years. (laughs) Which is the only reason I bring it up while he's not here. So don't tell him, all right? Don't let him in on this. Well, that sounds a little bit excessive, but I got to tell you, in general, I'm very much a fan of paving the way so that conditions are as good as possible, certainly for workers, but also for us in our home life or in our ministry life or in serving Jesus or whatever the case would be. And that's actually what we're going to be thinking about today. We're going to take a look at an example of one who, or of several actually, who are involved in paving the way to something that is vitally important as it comes to the fulfillment of the purposes of God. Throughout this Christmas season, we have been in this series, Christmas, the rest of the story where we have looked at a familiar part of the story, but there's always something behind it or something that it leads to. And we've been taking a look at those and learning some things along the way. And today we're actually going to conclude that series with a message that I'm calling Paving the Way. Paving the way, because that's what we are going to see. We're going to see the the work that is being done where God is doing something very, very special behind the scenes in some cases and overtly in others where he's paving the way for things to unfold that are going to be beneficial to the purposes of God. And sometimes the one who's involved in 
setting the course doesn't even know. And we're going to take a look at that today in Luke chapter 2, and uh, verse 1 specifically is where we're going to take a look at that. We'll see that in just a moment. But specifically, I'm interested in looking how this person's that we're going to meet in this text, how he was involved in paving the way to something bigger. And that bigger something is the rest of the story. But before we get into the rest of the story, we need to understand the story itself. And so let me clue us into that in this particular context. Perhaps the best known portion of all of the Christmas account is the one that we read in Luke chapter 2. You've heard it many, many times. It's the passage that talks about Mary giving birth to Jesus and that there are the shepherds out on the hillside and the angels appear to the shepherds with their glory to God in the highest and the shepherds go in to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened and you know the story. Well, the whole story gets kicked off actually back in chapter 2 and verse 1. And it's there that we read this. It says... In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, the part of that verse that we tend to focus on the most is the decree that is being issued that this census should be taken. And we focus on that because that's the thing that gets Mary and Joseph on the move. And, and we're able to sort of follow the, the story and the main, main characters of the story. That's what gets them on the move from Nazareth, where they had been living, to Bethlehem, where they need to go because that's where they need to go and register because of this census. And so we find them on the move. There was nothing else. There was no other reason why they would have ever left Nazareth, especially at this point, because Mary is well along with child. She's about to give birth. And so this would have been a difficult trip for them to make. So there's no way that they would have just picked up and gone for the fun of it off to Bethlehem. But here they are. They're picking up and they are making their way on down the road. And it was a pretty long trip. I mean, to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have been kind of in our context, kind of the distance of driving from here to... Thank you. Thank you. You have been here. You've been listening over the last few weeks. That really encourages me. That's fantastic. Yeah, about 75 miles is the duration of that trip. It would have been a difficult trip for her to make. But the decree was paving the way for God's purposes to be accomplished and taking them from the town where they were, or to the town that was prophesied that they needed to go where baby Jesus was going to be born. And kids in the room, what is the name of the city where Jesus was born? Anybody? Bethlehem. There you go. That's exactly right. Way to go. Fantastic. Yes. Of course, Caesar Augustus, the guy who's here in this story, didn't have any idea that his decree was accomplishing the purposes of God. He didn't know that. He was a long, long way away. If you think about the Roman Empire, which was the, the ruling area that surrounded Palestine and Jesus, where he was going to be born, all of that, you can see on the map, if you look at it on the screen, you can see the size of the Roman Empire. If you see, let's go ahead and take a look at the map, if we can turn to it. Here we go. If you look at the, the colored areas, that's the size of the Roman Empire, as it says, as its greatest extent. If you look inside the dotted black line, that's the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus when he was here on this earth. It's a vast empire, and 
Caesar Augustus was probably in the capital, which is not in Palestine. It's not Nazareth. That's just a back little town, back little water, you know, backwater little town. There you go. And uh, Bethlehem, that was just a tiny spot down there in Bethlehem in the corner of the empire. He wouldn't have had any idea of what was going on down there. Wouldn't have cared what was going on down there either with this couple, Mary and Joseph. But what he is doing, just thinking that he is celebrating his power by taking this census, he's actually paving the way for the prophecy of God to be completed and to be fulfilled. And that's not all that he did to pave the way for God's purposes to be accomplished, even if he did them unknowingly. There's more, and that's what leads us into the rest of the story. The rest of the story. Now, the rest of the story has a few key features that I want to point out, and they begin with this guy with Caesar Augustus. We read his name all the time in that verse, and we pass by it, and that's kind of the last we consider him. But he's more in this story than what you might imagine. He was actually born under the name of Gaius Octavius in 63 B.C., Gaius Octavius, though he's primarily known, like in the history books, if you're a history buff, as Octavian. Now, he was not in line. He was a distant relative of Julius Caesar, but he wasn't in line for the throne. He wasn't his heir. He wasn't his successor. But then, when Julius Caesar gets near the time when he is going to die, and he knows that, he realizes he doesn't have any appropriate heir or appropriate successor to hand over all of his power to. And so what he does is he actually adopts Octavian. He adopts him, but he doesn't tell him. It's not until Julius Caesar dies and effectively they're reading his will and they're like going to Octavian like, surprise, you're king. It's like, wow, really? He didn't, he didn't know, but that's the way that it went down. Of course, that surprise didn't sit very well with other people who thought maybe they would be the ones in line to get all of the power. People like, you've heard of them, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. They thought they should be the ones who would take over all of this wealth and all of this empire. And so there were some skirmishes and some battles that happened between Octavian and people like Mark Antony and Cleopatra to try to see who is going to take over, who is going to be the one who has the power. And there was one particular battle that is very well known that was the, the key battle in all of this. It's called the Battle of Actium. Actium. I know it's kind of a strange, it kind of sounds like a disease, doesn't it? Pray for me, I've got Actium. Yeah, <laughs> Battle of Actium, and Octavian emerges victorious. And because of that, he gets set up to be the emperor over all of the Roman Empire at that time. And with his adoption, Octavian, here's where his name comes from. He's adopted by Julius Caesar, so he comes into the house of Caesar. And after this battle that he wins, the Roman Senate gives him the name Augustus, which means exalted one or one worthy of worship. So he becomes Caesar Augustus, both names that are sort of handed over to him when his name originally was Octavian. He becomes the emperor, the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And he had all the power in the world. He could do anything that he wanted. And one of the things that he did is he changed the names, or he changed the name of one of the months on the calendar to name it after himself. Any guesses? August, exactly. Julius Caesar also had done the same thing, naming one of the months after him, which was? July, absolutely. This kind of, this, this idea of renaming months after yourself, I think is fascinating. I was kind of thinking April, May, Jeff, June, July, it, it sounds great. It's got a ring to it, and, and maybe it'll catch on. We'll have to wait and see. 
But Augustus would accept that worship as a god, though interestingly enough, just a few verses later, Luke, after he introduces him as Caesar Augustus, and it doesn't sound that way in our ear, but in that time, to hear Caesar Augustus, it would be like, here we're introducing you to Caesar, the, the, the one worthy of worship one. That guy, yeah. Here's what he says about him, or here's what he adds to the text just a few verses later. He says, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. In saying that, he's saying there's only one Lord who is worthy to be worshipped, and it is not Augustus. Then later in the book of Acts, Luke again is our author. He records this about the Christians. says, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king worthy of worship. One called Jesus. Augustus knew that with such a vast empire that spread out so far, it would be easy for people in different corners to get kind of upset and maybe rebel against him or against his kingdom, against his rule. And so he knew there were a few things that he was going to have to do to set things up so people didn't revolt. And uh, let me just highlight a few of these for you. One of them was that he knew he needed the goodwill of the people. He knew that he needed them to have a desire to not revolt against him. And so to foster the goodwill of the people, one of the things that he did is that he, <clears throat> he did a lot of different building projects. He would improve the countryside. He would improve the cities. He would repair things that were in disrepair there in their towns. And, and people felt very favorable about him because of that. Because it turns out when you give people things, they like you. I said, when you give people things, they like you. I said, when you give people things, they like you. All right, and I spilled his coffee. Okay. All right, absolutely. Well, when you give people things, they, he knew that. And so that's one of the things that he does. Again, a second thing he does, again, to foster the goodwill of the people, is he allows them to worship whoever they want to worship. As long as they're not rebelling against the king, against the nation, he's fine with that. And it sets the table for the freedom of not only Judaism to continue on, but Christianity to start to rise up as well. And then there was a third thing he did as well, and that was just in case the first two didn't work, he established a professional army, which could put down any insurrection that started to rise up at that particular time. So the combination of all of those defining moves on his part led to what we've already described, but also to something else which is vitally, vitally important that paved the way for God's purposes to be accomplished and is a critical part of the rest of the story. And it's something that's known as the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome or the Roman Peace. Maybe you have heard about this from some of your studies along the way or in school. In those days, peace was a rare commodity. There were always battles and wars that were being waged, and people were trying to usurp the authority of one leader or of one nation, and they were trying to take territory from one person and take it over from themselves. But this is a time when Augustus ushers in peace. In fact, he did such a good job of it that it lasts for about 200 years, which is unheard, absolutely unheard of at that time. And here's why that matters. This time of peace was established about 27 B.C. and continues until the late 2nd century A.D. And during this time, the peace that existed in the empire provided an ease of travel, 
so that people could move easily from one place to another because the roads were well-developed and they were being well-maintained. It was also allowing for that and paving the way because it allowed for safe travel to happen. Sometimes, previously, people would just stay home because it was such a dangerous endeavor to travel from one place to another. Well, not anymore. Now there is peace because of this professional army and for other reasons. And beyond that, the other thing that it fostered was the common language. Because people are traveling more, they're interacting more, Greek becomes the common language of all of the empire. And so as you would travel from one place to another, what you would have is the ability to communicate with other people from other lands, from other nations, from territory to territory. And here's why that's important. This is the exact window of time when Jesus is born, when he carries on his ministry, when he dies, when he's resurrected. This is the exact period of time when the Spirit of God comes. It's the time when the church is established. It is the time when the gospel starts to spread throughout the Roman Empire. That's what's going on here at this moment. This is not an accident. Paul's missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire probably could not have happened or would not have happened in the way that they did if this wasn't the circumstance that was happening. But because of the Pax Romana, because of the peace, because of the context in which Paul was ministering, he was able to travel throughout all of this empire to many corners of it and to preach the gospel and to see the gospel get a foothold in the empire because of this Pax Romana. God is paving the way through Augustus, who has brought this in, that it's ex- they're experiencing it for all of these years, and it is serving the purpose of the gospel all at the same time. It is Paul who writes to the church in Galatia, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. God had this in mind. God knew when the right moment was, and this was it. Augustus did a lot more than call for a census when, he, when it comes to the work of God, even though he did it unknowingly. The rest of the story is that he was instrumental in paving the way for the spread of the gospel and the establishment of churches. And Christianity continued to grow. Of course, not everybody likes it when Christianity grows or when any group grows because if a group starts to get many in number, People in leadership start to get a little bit nervous because there are a lot of people now, and what if they all got together and they all decided to revolt? So they don't like that, so they start to persecute Christians. And tremendous oppression comes against the Christians and against the church. Augustus is off the scene now, and others are coming into power, and so it becomes very, very difficult for Christians. But it does anything but snuff out Christianity, not at all. Quite to the contrary, it continued to grow, which leads to another of the features of the rest of the story that has to do with another emperor named Constantine. Constantine. As I was saying, Christians were experiencing increased persecutions from places and pockets throughout the empire. Some of them were being thrown in prison. Some of them were being kicked out of their houses. Some of them were being beaten and even worse, even experiencing death or martyrdom for their faith. But with Constantine, you can see there, who came on the scene in the early 4th century AD, all of that changed. He is the first emperor, the first Roman emperor to ever self-identify himself to be a Christian. And so he changes the landscape significantly for those who were Christian. 
he is well known for two very influential steps that he's taken. And you've probably heard of these, and you may or may not know or remember what they are. The first of those is called the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan. This was a, a statement, essentially, that was made in conjunction with a guy named Licinius in 313 A.D. that protected the rights of Christians for the first time ever. All of a sudden, it was fine and appropriate to be a Christian. You wouldn't be persecuted for your faith in the context that is now being decreed. No retaliation. Where possible, reparations were made for people who had lost their homes. They were put back into homes. For those who had been unjustly thrown into prison, they were taken out of prison. It was a huge step for Christians and for others. It was actually a, a period of pretty much just religious tolerance is what is going on here which led to the second influential step that was taken by Constantine, that is that he convened something called the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. As the years passed following the teaching and the ministry of the apostles and of, of Paul and of Jesus, there was some heresy that started to creep into the church. And in particular, it had to do with Jesus, or a large part of it had to do with Jesus and his deity, is he who some people have, and there was this division that was going on in the church. So what Constantine does is he invites all of these religious leaders and scholars to come together so that they can work through this idea of defining what it meant to be Christian. So they hammered all of that out and it resulted in what is known as the Nicene Creed, which is a beautiful statement of Orthodox Christian doctrine that continues to be used around the world today. It was a beautiful thing, and this is where it comes from. It was a return to the teaching of Christ and the apostles. It's not that they came together and said, let's decide what Christianity is going to be. No, they're saying, let's get back to what it was, and let's make sure we get clarity <clears throat> on what that all means. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Following Constantine, there's another emperor named Theodosius, who took it even another step, a vital step, <clears throat> an amazing step, making Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire in 380 AD. Just think about this. This is absolutely stunning. You start with 12 disciples, small band of followers, some fishermen, and a zealot, and a tax collector, and then you decrease to 11 because one of them defects and becomes a traitor. And from that, what happens through the movement of God, through these and others who would come to follow, in a period of about 350 years, Christianity becomes the official religion of this entire Roman Empire. That is absolutely mind-boggling that that would happen. But that's exactly what happened. Because along the way, the way had been paved through what God is doing, how God is working behind the scenes. And that's much of the rest of the story. Now, it wasn't just coincidental that this happened. We've already said that. It wasn't just accidental. It was providential that this is happening. Remember, Jesus came in the fullness of time. When the time was exactly right. And God used the circumstances of that day to accomplish his purposes, the circumstances that were going on at the time, whatever they happened to be. Augustus wasn't doing Mary and Joseph any favors by sending them to Bethlehem. He wasn't friendly toward Jesus. He was just serving his own purposes. And he, as he served his own purposes, God took those and turned them to good. 
and turn them to his purposes being accomplished. The same was true with the Pax Romana. It wasn't a religious initiative, but God used it to the to do incredible things. And that encourages me because what it means is that God can take any circumstance whatsoever, any context that we live in, and he can use it for good. And there's no reason to believe he's not using what is going on behind the scenes, even in our world today, as a way to pave the way to something additional that he is designing, desiring to carry out and that he is designed to have be the case and to work forward. God's hands have never been tied, regardless of what's going on in our world, regardless of who's in the White House, regardless of who controls Congress. His hands have never been tied by hatred or division or strife or crime rates or inflation or selfishness or any other cultural ill, and his hands are not tied today. Amen. Hallelujah. God is at work. God is orchestrating his purposes. And we can go back and we look at the circumstance that we see here in this text, a name that is just sort of thrown in that just sounds like travelogue to tell you just when it happened to happen. But there's so much more behind the scenes that is going on that's important for us to know. It reminds me of Joseph in Egypt, Jacob's son, not Mary's husband, who reflected on all that he had experienced through the hands of other people who were not serving God's purposes at all. And here's what he concludes. He concluded, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Paul adds this. He says that God's work, or God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God is at work in our world. He always has been. Sometimes that's really easy to see. Sometimes it's not. But whether we see it on the surface or not, what we can know is that God has been paving the way to accomplish his purposes, and he still is doing just that. He's working out his purposes for his people, for his church, and for you. And I certainly hope that that encourages you at this Christmas season. The story begins with a clueless king issuing a seemingly random decree, but it ends with the message of the gospel alive throughout the entire Roman world. That is stunning. That's something that only God can do, but it's something that he does all the time, and it's the rest of the story. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there's so many circumstances that happen around us that make us wonder at times where you are or what's going on or, or why is it this way or why is that person in charge or, or why are we experiencing this cultural evil that is happening around us or, or why don't you do more about this? Lord, what we come to recognize as we consider the rest of the story is we consider what you have always been doing is that you're working out your purposes and that even though there are times when it looks like you're not in charge, there are times when it looks like the world is having its way, there are times that we get discouraged because this decision's been made or this, this flow of culture seems to go, be going in a direction that seems completely antithetical to what your will or what your desire would be or certainly what your word is calling us to. That even in that, 
the big picture reminds us again and again that you have always and always will pave the way for your purposes to be accomplished. Lord, we thank you for that. And we ask that you might encourage us this day, this Christmas season, with that news, with that good news. Lord, we thank you that the, the gospel spread, that the gospel gained a foothold and continued to spread. And there's no reason that even in a culture like our own that seems so much in opposition to what you were leading, just like the Christians were so opposed back in the first and second century, but you did something miraculous through them. And Lord, we believe today that you can do something miraculous in us. So as we wrap up this year, and as we look toward the dawn of a new year, I pray that you might encourage us when we look around and see things that would otherwise discourage us, the things that make us wonder what in the world's going on, that we would see even then the reminder that comes from your word that, it, you, that is you've always been paving the way and you've always worked out your purposes. So Lord, give us patience. Give us confidence. Give us hope, we pray in this season, and always. For we pray it in the name of Jesus. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. May the Lord bless you. Merry Christmas. Would you stand as we continue to sing?
Christmas, everybody. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you here next weekend.